review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and even strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution, as these podcasts will feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have Jackie Brown starring Pam Greer, Samuel L. Jackson, Robert Forrester, Bridget Fonda, Michael Keaton, and Robert De Niro, directed by Quentin Tarantino. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films. Uh, today we're opening up a brand new film cast. Uh, we're calling this one The Films of Tarantino Part 1 and opening up a new cask and opening up a new bottle today. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? This is one that I scored this week. It's called Redemption Weeded Bourbon. Uh, it's not the alcohol or the bourbon of the month from Total Wine. It's just one that kind of caught my eye. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. Um, we're opening it up. Should we give it a test drive and see? Yep. All right. You first. Here we go. I'll hit you up. that and then okay here we go cheers cheers Jess. Ooh, man that's interesting that kind of hits you pretty hard up front and then kind of lingers for a bit that's got a long back end that's all the way in my nasal passage mm-hmm. that's nice so yeah, Redemption, a blend of 51% corn, 46 winter wheat, and 4% malted barley aged in new oak uh, charred barrels. <coughs> yeah, that has that that has a good taste to it. Mm-hmm. We're drinking batch number 002. Yeah, so you can definitely taste the, the, the corn in that. I can definitely taste it. Certainly. Yeah, that's pretty good. I've never heard of, of Redemption, but bravo brand new entry into into the whiskey cask for rye smile films <laughs> yeah this we, we haven't had a bad one yet no we haven't yeah so that's excellent one of these times we have to slip up on one of our selections but until then i think we'll just reap the benefits of good whiskey it might be fun one time to do a cast that's really bad films really bad with really bad bourbon we'll just want to like kill ourselves <laughs> that, would be, that would be fun excellent so uh, today we're talking about jackie brown from 1997 this is uh quentin tarantino's follow-up to the hugely successful pulp fiction and then i always find it interesting because this film sandwiched in between that and kill bill the two-part kill bill but I'm excited to talk about the guy. I'm excited to talk about this film. And, you know, this is all leading up to what he has coming out at the end of the month, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I've mentioned before. This was the film I was most looking forward to seeing this year. And please, we need. I need a winner. So let me ask you a question because <laughs> I know this was one of the ones that you were looking the most forward to, like you just mentioned. Go ahead. Summer's been bad. Good setup. Yep. You put this on a tee for me. Yes. From the little bit that you've seen from the trailer. Okay. Are your hopes elevated or are they suppressed for how that movie's going to deliver? I think they're they're still stagnant because I go into any Tarantino film kind of not knowing what to expect, and he's taking um, a very you know classic Hollywood tale of like sixties ish Hollywood mixed with the whole Charles Manson Sharon Tate, and I just don't know how that's all going to be intertwined, and so I don't know what to expect from that, but. For anything, I think there's a few filmmakers making films today that when their films come out, they're like, they're very eventish. Like, you kind of wait for them and they come and you have to go see them. At least that's how I feel about Tarantino. Like, ever since, uh, I think Kill Bill, I've had to go see every one of his films in the theater just because he's so prolific about I'm only going to make 10 and whatever. But, 
no, I think my expectations are kind of where they were at the beginning of the year. I'm excited with the cast that they have, but I just don't know which direction this story is going to go. I have the same take mm-hmm. that you do. And I do agree with the event sort of films, mostly because he's really good at pacing them out. Mm-hmm. And then when you say, I'm only going to do 10, which Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is number nine. Yep. Okay. Do you actually believe that he's only going to make 10 films? I, I, I don't. But okay, hold on. Yeah. So, um, my interest is peaked, but that trailer for that film mm-hmm. seems to be such a brown, like huge, big enveloping landscape I'm a little worried that that movie might be a hot mess okay now I'll play devil's advocate to my own argument okay we won't do the hateful eight in this cask which is good because I hate that film okay and it's funny because I I'm kind of fond of that one too we have really For, different opinions on Tarantino yeah, I think we're gonna come to we'll get into that and the hateful eight is exactly what the opposite of once upon a time in Hollywood seems to be Mm-hmm. This is a stuntman and a has-been previously A-listed actor to moving B-list status, sort of coupled with the family with the Manson effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, who knows? And, and then also a movie about Hollywood, which tends to be very self-aggrandizing in his hands. <clears throat> yeah. God only knows what this film is going to be, yeah. which is the exact opposite of The Hateful Eight because that's essentially a single location film. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why I like that film. So... I'm not opposed to single location films, Jesse. I just, yeah. that movie, I just, that's the first Tarantino film that I actually really wanted it to be over. Yeah. Well, it is long. And I think Tarantino is also a lesson in overindulgence, which I think we'll get into in terms of dialogue, which for the most part, I do like it, but I know when he can get long winded. But let's, let's save that for the happy hour. Yeah. But I think we're gonna we're gonna be building the next couple of weeks some flight and nightcap questions built all around the man, and I think we got a pretty good flight lined up uh, to start us off. Sure so, yeah. Matt, my flight to you is: what are your top three favorite Tarantino characters? And we'll do it how we usually: three, three, two, two, one, one. Uh, number three for me checks in. It's L Driver. Okay. From Kill Bill. It'd been a while since Daryl Hannah had had any significant role in film. Yes. And watching her show up. The way that he used her in both one and two, I was quite fond of. Okay. That's one of my more memorable villains in all of cinematic history for me. I think she's remarkably terrifying. Mm-hmm. The whistle that accompanies her, yep. the patch, the nurse's outfit. I mm-hmm. uh, really am fond of L Driver. Okay. So she's my number three. How about you? Okay, yeah, that, that that's that's pretty interesting. Um, yeah, from Kill Bill, and, and she, was, she was in both of them. Yeah, you're right. Daryl Hannah was kind of off the map when yeah. that film came. And I think that's kind of a trope of Tarantino. He's really good at getting actors that are totally off the grid, that were of significance in their given decade. And we got a few of those in this film today. Indeed. Um, but then kind of giving them a second chance. And I think they kill it. They, they always kind of come in and they, they kind of give it their all. Maybe there's something to desperation in the performance mm-hmm. that it gives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I'm serious. No, I think so. I mean, the, the lines from... Forster and Greer mm-hmm. post this film essentially are, man, Pam, maybe we got a chance to resurrect our career. From Forster to Greer mm-hmm. in a Q&A. Yeah. So you get a really good performance. Yes. I think that's fair. Okay. Excellent. 
My number three is going to be totally shocking to probably everybody, but I really do like this film. It's a guilty pleasure of mine. It's Death Proof, and it's actually, it's not Kurt Russell. I was going to say it's Kurt Russell. It's not It's uh, not any of the girls from the beginning. It's actually one of the girls from the end. It's Kim, played by Tracy Thompson. She's the, the African-American one that's the, the, the stunt driver for that little group. The amount of... Um, quotable lines that she provides in their little segment which they're looking for this 1970 dodge challenger to play ships masked on that mm-hmm. Russell is going to terrorize them she is equal points hilarious equal points sass equal points just she's kind of like that samuel l jackson element but in her own right and you know without her i don't think that second half would would, would work very well and I think all those girls in both segments play off each other very well. But if I had to pick one, she's, she's by far my favorite. I know a lot of people don't talk about Death Proof and probably about her character, but I think it's one that stands out in that film. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I never would have thought that would have exactly. been on yeah. list. But yeah, I, I come back to my favorite. And Death Proof is one of my favorite films. That no one, not a lot of people are going to say that, but she's one of the reasons why it is my favorite. Well, I think part of that for you regarding Death Proof is... Mm-hmm. The presence of Kurt Russell. Mm-hmm. For everybody out there, Jesse's a huge Kurt Russell fan. He's my all-time favorite actor. Okay. <laughs> and then you like Tarantino, mm-hmm. and it's in an interesting venue that he's presented. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right up your alley. Yeah. Of course you love that. Yeah. Okay, so my number two okay. uh, is Jackie Brown, actually. Okay. Um, Pam Greer, to me, is a truly remarkable creature. Okay. I can't say that... I have a ton of history with the black exploitation mm-hmm. of Foxy Brown and coffee and such. Mm-hmm. I'm going to talk a little bit about that. I'm familiar right with it. Yeah. Uh, and that, that's just out of my sort of scope of when I mm-hmm. came to know film. Mm-hmm. But I just think that every time she's on the screen, and this is a success and a failure for me at sometimes in both this film, mm-hmm. she's the largest presence by miles on there. And let's be frank about it. Yeah. I think she's supposed to be. Yeah. The title of the movie we're covering today is Jackie Brown. Mm-hmm. And for everybody out there, if the title of the movie is the name of one of the characters, then the movie by default becomes a character study. Mm-hmm. I think Pam Greer is cast brilliantly. Yeah. The and we're going to get into the music too, mm-hmm. but it's literally suited like a custom fit suit on her. It's oh, yeah. perfect. Yeah. And I just think she's really engaging. Um, and I just find her to be immensely watchable and rewatchable in this film. It yeah. is partly mm-hmm. that she's attractive, and it's mm-hmm. partly that she's also not in the same way we talk about Betty Davis and Kristen Ritter. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's yeah, a good one. My number two. Excellent. Okay, number two for you. Number two for me. I'm actually going to uh, Django Unchained um, with Dr. King Schultz, played by Christoph Waltz. Christoph Waltz and I would want to say Samuel Jackson, I think, were just tailor-made to read Tarantino's dialogue. It just comes off the tip of their tongue with such such, such ease. And Dr. King Schultz is an interesting character, being that he's this former dentist, and he's got that ridiculous dentist buggy that he, with the tooth that flops around. Yeah. But he's turned bounty hunter, and he's... He frees Django, played by Jamie Foxx, in hopes of, you know, tracking down this very heavy, you know, plantation family, the, the Brittle Brothers. And then through doing all of that, I think he strikes a very interesting partnership with him saying, well, I, you know, you've helped me. I'm, I'm going to help you get back 
get back your wife. And then they go on a total quest to crazy town, to Candyland. But I've, I, I like his his dry, wry sense of humor that he exude, exudes in that character. And I just love Christoph Waltz in Tarantino's films. Hans Landa is hard for me to pick as my favorite character, as great a performance as I think that is, too. Good choice. Yeah. This one's going to be a little on the nose. Okay. But I have to do it for much the same reason that Kurt Russell mm-hmm. has an affinity for you. Yes. It's Bruce Willis for me. Okay. And it's Butch Coolidge in mm-hmm. Pulp Fiction. Perfect. Of all of the sequences in that film, he is my <clears throat> number one. That's my favorite sequence in that in that movie. Well, I think he portrays it well. <laughs> and from the bit with Christopher Walken giving him the watch and mm-hmm. that absolutely brilliant scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, to the way he addresses the issue with his girlfriend and then what he finds himself into. It's completely preposterous, yes. but infinitely rewatchable. Mm-hmm. And I think it's that way because Bruce Willis kind of looks like the very gettable as far as <laughs> yeah. throw the fight for the bookie mm-hmm. mobster. He just fits the bill. Kind of yeah. washed up, living in some dingy hotel on the way out of town. Yeah. I just And I really like Bruce Willis. Yeah. So feel that steam boy, that's probably fucking with you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, bring out the gimp. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that whole crazy scene. Like, there's always there's scenes in Tarantino's films that like, and that's one of them. That where you're just like you're on your path of your film, and then you just take like a crazy 360, and you don't know how you got there, but you're like, oh my god, like you're just watching it unfold. There's two other ones that were in play just okay. in passing okay. that I'm yeah. going to give you. Go ahead. Jules Winfield is obviously in play, mm-hmm. but. That's just, that's sort of the quintessential, or sure. maybe Mr. Pink. Yeah. Those are sort of the quintessential Tarantino sure, characters. Sure. So I, I sort of kicked that one to the curb. And the other one, actually, is Max Cherry in today's film. I really like Max Cherry. I do, too. I like the name, too. Fits, doesn't yeah, it? it does. It's sort of, as Jackie kind of, and this is, I don't mean to be perverse mm-hmm. or obscene by this, but as Jackie kind of breaks him in in this movie, mm-hmm. Max Cherry mm-hmm. sort of fits perfectly, if you catch my drift, because she kind of yeah. breaks him in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but we're going to spend plenty of time talking about Max here in Excellent. a few minutes. So let me hear your number one. My number one, again, talking about you know Tarantino plucking those actors that have just shit the can on their career and giving them that, like ever so elusive second chance which in Hollywood like you don't get a lot of those so I'm gonna probably give the one the actor who's given the best second chance and then he also kind of squalored this one and that's John Travolta's Vincent Vega in Pulp Fiction Mm -hmm. my favorite bits in Pulp Fiction are the scenes that he's in so there's two sequences it's the scene of him and um, Marcellus Wallace's wife Mia Wallace when they go out on the date and I could just listen to them talk for hours and you know the way that progresses you know with the syringe and the overdose and all that and then we get him a little more at the end there when they blow marvin's head off in the car and they have to clean this mess up and he's like he's like you must have hit a bump or something i just shot marvin in the face he's just so ridiculous but he's also kind of likable but also hateable and man he's got some great lines and that hair he has is so ridiculous but no, I, I have to pick him. And I'm not a big John Travolta fan. Like, no. I, I like him in uh, in films like like Blowout. You know, I really like De Palma's Blowout. And, you know, there's a few others. But, man, this one for kind of a career that was probably kind of DOA, this was this is a good move for him, in, in my opinion. Uh, you know, 
Travolta has had an interesting career mm-hmm. from Saturday Night Fever to Welcome Back, Cotter. To, to Scientology. Well, and then, <laughs> yeah, I, mean, that, I think that plays into this. Mm-hmm. To Look Who's Talking, which is a voice actor as the baby. Bruce Willis? Uh, no, not Bruce Willis. Uh, John Travolta. Well, he's in it. Bruce Willis is the voice of the baby. Oh, no, John Travolta's in that film yeah, as, yeah, yeah. as Kirstie yes, Alley's second. Yes, yeah. Um, to Michael... And then you get... Phenomena? Yeah, like... Some trash. Yep. And what's that alien film? Battlefield maybe? Earth. Might be one of the worst five, ten well, that's films the, of that's all time. Well, that's the Scientology movie. That was written sure. by L. Ron Hubbard. Right. So you get an interesting career, mm-hmm. but for as bad as Travolta is sometimes, mm-hmm. is also as really good as he is sometimes. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people dismiss Saturday Night Fever because of the Bee Gees and the soundtrack. He's no, fucking awesome yeah, in that Yeah, it's film. a great performance. That's actually a pretty good movie, I mm-hmm. think, too. Mm-hmm. He can certainly dance. Yeah. Vinnie Barbarino is one of the most memorable characters of all time. Welcome back, Kata. Yep. And then you get, like you said, some of the Michael stuff and then resurrects him here with this film. Yeah. Only to watch him completely derail it again. Derail it again. Can you remember the last thing that you saw Travolta in that you liked? (sighs) No. It seems strange to me that he's sort of gone the route of Johnny Depp. And what I mean by that is doing his best performances and costumes as a stage actor yeah, definitely. on screen. Mm-hmm. Whether it's Battlefield Earth or it's John Gotti, mm-hmm. it's not even Travolta looking like Travolta. It's what gear can we put him in. Sure. And that being said, with a whole lot less ability than even drunk today's version of Johnny Depp has. Yeah, I think so. And so you just kill a career. Yeah. Very interesting story. Like if that guy writes a memoir, mm-hmm. I'm buying that. I'm there day I, Don't one. you want to read his... I, I do. Being sued by all the masseuses mm-hmm. that he's had sexual encounters with while on the massage table. Like, John Travolta is a freak, man. Yeah. But he's really good in that film. He's really good. My favorite. A few others kind of like on the outliers. I really like Lieutenant Eldo Rain, Brad Pitt from Inglorious Bastards, um, Mr. Pink, yeah. Mr. Blonde for that matter. Sam Madsen. Um, yep, Michael Madsen. Yeah. Uh, also, um, even from Pulp Fiction, I like... Harvey Keitel is the wolf, the the cleaner that... Which is just... He's just a basic, obvious, clean-it-up guy. I love that they go to him as the <laughs> expert, and he's just like, well, yeah, you got to clean it up. It's 30 minutes away. I'll be there in 10. <laughs> I know. He gets, and, and he gets there. Like I like I like those characters. I even really kind of like um, Leonardo DiCaprio as Calvin Candy. I think that's a great performance. Again, I don't, I don't agree with the character's morales, but... He just chews up that scenery in that film. So, man, there's a ton to pick from. I, I didn't even mention any of the Kill Bill ones. There's some, there's some characters I like I like in, in that film. But, well, um, Bill himself was one that I gave a lot of thought to. Sure, yeah. Whereas you don't like those films, yeah. I actually do like yeah, those yeah. films. Yeah. And I think the conversation that he has with the bride, who was also just out of my list of possibles on this, mm-hmm. is fantastic. Definitely. Anyway, yeah, excellent. That's a good flight. Yeah, that was. Uh, I like. I like talking about that. So, here's to those characters. Here's to those characters. Certainly memorable film characters in the last 25 years that we've gotten from him. So, Indeed, yes. amen to that. Amen. So let's get to that. Let's get to the happy hour. Our review breakdown of Jackie Brown.
Jackie Brown opens up with a bit of an homage to the film The Graduate with our character Jackie Brown arriving to work at Los Angeles International Airport to the tunes of Across 110th Street by Bobby Womack. This is a great way to start the film. Kind of no dialogue, just action. We're just seeing her on that. I had a hard time naming this thing in The Graduate podcast, but she's on that roving walkway <laughs> Moving, people mover people mover there you go to this tune that just totally fits like fits her and if you kind of listen to lyrics it's like about someone that's kind of been like pushed down and they're kind of like waiting to be like be, be brought back up and in a scene that i think she gives later on in the film like when she evaluates like her job like she's an airline stewardess on the worst flight in like the entire world la to cabo san lucas yeah just a shit job making fourteen thousand dollars a year Mm, 16 but yeah yeah doesn't matter (laughs) doesn't matter yeah and so what what's it all for so when this opportunity presents itself i think she's gonna take you know full advantage of it can i ask you a question go ahead do you think that 110th street Mm mm-hmm was found by Tarantino or used by Tarantino after he had written the character Jackie Brown, or was it you? Now I know this is adapted from a novel. Sure, yeah. But do you think Jackie Brown inspired 110th Street, or do you think 110th Street inspired Mm-mm. the character of Jackie Brown? No, Jackie Brown inspired the use of 110th Street. Okay, yeah. I hope you're right. Because okay. it changes things for me in the film in a big way. Yeah, I, I'm gonna. I I think I'm siding with you on this one. Yeah, I think so. And if I look at you know Tarantino's probably writing perspective, you know if he's this is an interesting vehicle for him just because it is his only film that has been adapted from another source. Mm-hmm. This is a book written by Elmore Leonard called Rum Punch. And I did 1988, I think. Yeah, and I did a little research on this. So after the huge success that was Pulp Fiction, him and his um, um, writing guy Roger Avery actually acquired the rights to three of uh, these books, uh, Rum Punch being one of them. And he had no intention of making this; he was going to do one of the other ones. And then he went back and reread it and was like, "Well, maybe, maybe there's something here," because the character in the book isn't Jackie Brown; it's Jackie Burke. So he changed that element, and I think with the idea of a Pam Greer vehicle. So once he kind of, he sets these kind of pieces in motion, and then like him being such a music aficionado too, what song best fits Jackie Brown at the beginning, then I think you then go for that influence. Jackie Brown influences across 110th Street. The takeaway from that song is hustle. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to hustle. And boy, does she hustle at the end of it. Well, that's the whole film. Yeah. Is the hustle. Mm -hmm. So... Back to what we said in the flight, or what I said in the flight. The title of the film is Jackie Brown, so it's going to be a character breakdown or a character piece. Mm-hmm. We want to see a change in the character from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning of the film, she's hustler because she's running money back across the border mm-hmm. for Sam Jackson. Yeah. And at the end of the film, she's clearly not doing that. We'll get into the breakdown of early Jackie Brown versus later Jackie Brown Mm -hmm. and talk about that character arc, I hope. I think it's interesting. And as we're talking right now, I still, I watched this, like before we did this, Mm -hmm. this, this, this week, I watched this movie twice. Okay. Um, And we'll get into that too. Why? Okay. I still am not a hundred percent certain. Okay. 
how I feel about that arc. Okay. It's her character, and I said this is why I said in the flight, I mm-hmm. think she makes my list of top three, mm-hmm. is perplexing to me, both good and bad. Yeah. Pam Greer's perfect for this mm-hmm. role. And I love to just, I just love to watch her. Yeah. That was part of the rewatchability. I just, I want to watch Pam Greer again. Mm-hmm. But as interested in that as I was, I was also troubled by some of the elements that make up what she does. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Go ahead. Directly from this, we are introduced to three more characters, uh, characters Ordell Roby, Louis Gara, and Melanie. Uh, and th- this is another bit of a staple of, of, of Tarantino's kind of lore. It's just characters sitting around talking about what I'm just going to call bullshit. So here they are watching this machine gun video, and he's going like, now, th- now that's the AK-47. And you absolutely positively got to kill every motherfucker in the room. Mm-hmm. So through the video, though, we learn that he is a bit of a gun runner of, yeah. of types. He sells guns. Um, we're going to find out later um, in Mexico. But this is a, a long scene, maybe five to ten-ish minutes. And it's just kind of getting us to know these characters. Lewis has just gotten out of prison. Melanie's his non-compliant girlfriend who just just wants to get high. Uh do you like this type of thing in a Tarantino film, Matt? Because this is something like, I honestly, for me, I could watch this for hours. Like just, just kind of this, the, the character just kind of going back and forth. And I know in a, in a film that kind of tends to bog it down, but more times than not, I'm usually willing to give Tarantino a pass for things like this. Not everybody, but he's up there. I'm reminded of Orson Welles and M. Night Shyamalan. Okay. And that's the success of what breaks you in Mm -hmm. and then trying to repeat that. Mm -hmm. From Citizen Kane to The Magnificent Ambersons to The Sixth Sense and the twist ending to Unbreakable to the success of Reservoir Dogs and the very, and I find it to be really brilliant writing, Mm -hmm. breakdown of Like a Virgin as these gangsters Mm -hmm. are sitting around this table discussing the merits of that song regarding Madonna. Yeah. It's his greatest gift. Mm-hmm. It's also his his greatest curse, too. biggest hurdle. Yeah, he does it again in um, Pulp Fiction with the Royale with cheese. Now it's not necessarily right off the bat, mm-hmm. but we'll have these sort of tangential dialogue bits that are intended to give you some insight into the characters. Mm-hmm. The takeaway from Reservoir Dogs with that like a virgin bit, yeah, is these characters are pretty smart. Yeah, because that's a pretty smart conversation. Mm-hmm. And also a little bit reckless. That's the final conversation you have before you go to this very bloody caper that you're about to pull off. Exactly. I would ask you mm-hmm. in this film, okay, as uh, with Od- Odell Odell Roby, Roby, thank you, yeah. is talking to Lewis. Mm-hmm. Two things are present to me. Okay. One is Lewis is essentially comatose the whole film. Like, he just barely says anything. He just sits there. <laughs> yes. Matter of fact, Odell kind of even jumps his ass a couple of times about that. <laughs> and it's almost a little too on the nose about what Odell does to mm-hmm. be speaking about what it is that he does in that manner. The yeah. brilliance is defining the character and something not related to the character. Okay. He runs guns and he's breaking down the use of guns. Um so I guess that's a really long answer to no. I don't particularly think that's great writing. Okay. I wish they'd just get on with it at that point. But let, let me ask you this, Matt. It's the fruit of his own poison tree he's okay. indulged in I'm way a, too far. I'm going to sling it right back at you yeah, because you're, you more so than myself are a fan of, of t- 
television shows. Like you, you get to watch more than I do, mm-hmm. and TV does this. Oh no, it's yeah, all, I know where you're going. Yeah, all the time, right? So does that? I, I know you have 13 episodes to really stretch mm-hmm. out, and they're two totally different mediums. But you it's, have about it, enough content for eight. Yeah, right? it's kind of the same thing. Like, okay, so yes, very fair. Yeah, yeah. But then I'll give it back to you in this. Yeah. How much content mm-hmm. is in this film? Because this movie doesn't actually tell its story. Because I marked it last night. Yeah, like until the thirty-eight minute mark left. Yeah, it's fucking an hour and a half. Yeah, to get to the final thirty-eight minutes, and mm-hmm. I'm just gonna let the cat out of the bag. Yeah, that final thirty-eight minutes is shit. And Pam Greer even admitted it. She yeah. hates the ending of this film. Mm-hmm. So like, it is a bit anticlimactic. Fuck, dude, it's yeah. an hour and a half to build up this heist. Mm-hmm. That well, I don't want to let the cat out of the bag because we'll get to that for the that. Yeah. There's a huge, yeah. let me say that again, yeah. I mean e-fucking-mince, yeah. huge problem in that heist, okay. which is so obvious, I can't believe that we spent 90 minutes not getting to that. Okay. So back to what you said, very fair. Mm-hmm. How much content do you have to tell the story? Exactly. And yeah, mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. That's a major problem with 13 issue or 13 episode runs. Yeah. Man, sometimes it needs to be eight. Eight, yeah. Excellent. Except for Cobra Kai. <laughs> Except for Cobra Kai. There's the Cobra Kai plug again. Every single one of those is awesome. There you go. So, you know, yeah, this and this is interesting. So, Ordell uh, Roby and Louis Gar are actually um, some Elmore Leonard staples. I, I'd like to take a little moment to talk about him for just a second. For everybody out there, for Jesse, so you know about Jesse on this, he's yeah. a huge Elmore Leonard fan. Yeah. So, um, you're getting sage advice here from gospel tongues about Elmore Leonard. So <laughs> there you go. Enlighten our listeners, my friend. So I can honestly see where Tarantino got a lot of his ideas and prose was from reading these books. Sure. Now, Matt, I, I had you read one called Swag. Swag one time. I mean, when you sit down and open these books and you start reading these characters and how they just kind of go on, it's like watching one of these films. Like, it's like verbatim. Yeah. They talk like the characters. They act like the characters. If I could sum up his films, it's like a bunch of gangsters doing a bunch of gangster shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to quote Pulp Fiction. And the characters cross-pollinate. Like, mm-hmm. like uh, Tarantino's, uh, like, films. Like, it, like Tarantino has, uh, like, uh, like, brand, like, names and foods and things that show up across all his films. Well, Leonard did that, too, with a lot of his characters. Lewis and Ordell show up in, a, in, in another book. Uh, well, do well. the one you blew my mind with the Ray Nicolette story. Mm-hmm. Yes. Go ahead. So Ray Nicolette later on in this film is played by Michael Keaton. Um, he's um, works for the ATF, and he's kind of in on this hustle, if we'll call it that. But he's also involved in the book Out of Sight, which was adapted the year after this by Steven Soderbergh, and Soderbergh waited to see who Tarantino casted as Nicolette, and kind of came and asked, "Hey, can I?" Can I use Borrow him. Michael Keaton in my film? And he's only in it for like a scene or two. But they even had that element. Like Ray Nicolette transfers over from film to film as well. Same actor. I gave that a lot of thought because it really hit a nerve with me. Because mm-hmm. Out of Sight is one of my favorite films. Mm-hmm. That would be top shelf plus for me. Mm-hmm. I love that movie. Yeah. It made me really question what my relationship with Quentin Tarantino was. Written okay. by the same guy with mm-hmm. literally the same characters. Yeah. Uh, I freaking love mm-hmm. Out of Sight. Yeah, the, I love that film. Stylized, it's 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 different. It's Soderbergh and Tarantino are they're different. That's why. Okay, you just stole my thunder. Yeah. Right, exactly. It's a Soderbergh vehicle versus a Tarantino vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it's a really interesting position. And I would actually tell our listeners, mm-hmm. when you get a chance, go ahead and review Jackie Brown post-podcast. Yeah. And then carve yourself out a couple hours and check out Out of Sight. You'll see the same character, like Jesse said. There's mm-hmm. the same Bray Nicolette presence in both films. Mm-hmm. But the handling of the material is so stylized per each of the two directors. Yeah. Man, it's it's what made the 90s for me. Yeah. Next to, I won't even call it a decade, but the decade, that the period that you and I both love, like 66 through like 74. Yeah. Like that's our favorite, both of us, that's our favorite period. Yeah. This That's number two for me because of that. Because of films and filmmakers like that. Just that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so please take the time to check those films out, everybody. You won't be disappointed. Definitely. So yeah, Leonard's a bit of an interesting, an interesting guy, and you know, uh, Get Shorty, and he had that show Justified, Mm -hmm. like that's based on his books. Uh, A lot of stuff from the seventies that's just kind of no nonsense. But like, we really like swag, and I would love to add it adapt that film mat into a screenplay but yeah we can't because you know who owns the rights to it brian dennehy of all people like that's crazy yeah mold that one over for a bit but if you're want more of the tarantino flair definitely check out some of his books um but let's talk about tarantino a little bit before we get into a little bit more of the story like i think he's a bit of an interesting definitely an interesting character he's very bizarre Mm -hmm. but He's always gone on record saying, I didn't go to film school. I went to the films. And he worked in a video store, and he was very much a film student as much as, you know, Matt, Matt and I are. Just watching film after film and kind of like breaking it down, everything from young to uh, old to contemporary and vice versa and horror and Western and things like that. His favorite film of all time is The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. It's a pretty good one there. But um, again, like... What Hollywood comes down to is it's who you know. Like, look, a lot of people go to these prestigious USC and UCLA film schools, and they like can't even like get get a job doing what they went to school for. Isn't that right, Matt? Like, That's, yeah. a lot of them are like waiters at the restaurants. I say there. go to California Pizza Kitchen, and you'll find twenty five people that have a degree from USC in film. Yeah, it's it's a very frustrating process, and it totally boils down to that idea of it's all who you know. So Tarantino, that it's oh, how it's how he got in. He at a party met Lawrence Bender. And at later down the road met Roger Avery, and these became his future collaborators. They helped get his his screenplays, you know, off the ground. Uh, you know, the first big one being um, in nineteen, I think it was the late eighties. His first paid gig was to write from dusk till dawn. Uh, that was his first like paid kind of gig, and that film didn't happen until like ninety four, ninety five. But he was a lot. Yeah, he got screwed on True Romance. Basically, sold that script for ten thousand dollars. So yeah, he's he wrote True Romance and Natural Born Killers, and those were spec screenplays that got sold to studios that were made by other directors. There's a pretty interesting story about True Romance too, regarding mm-hmm. Tarantino and the production company, which mm-hmm. is him down to his last destitute dime, mm-hmm. having to sell this property for way below SAG prices. Mm-hmm. And then the movie gets made and he hits it and shows up and you know punches the producer in the face. I don't think that's Lawrence Bender. Mm-hmm. And I actually have a bit of a history with Bender Spink as well. Okay. Interned there for a couple weeks, reading for them for mm-hmm. a time, mm-hmm. about the time that History of Violence had been out. Mm-hmm. Lawrence Bender's a pretty stand-up guy from the little bit that I know of him. Yeah. Um, but essentially, Tarantino has to give up this property for pennies yeah. on what the industry standard is. And again, this suits the Tarantino story to show up and mm-hmm. sock the guy in the face and probably call him a motherfucker <laughs> yeah. as it's scored to like some Earth, Wind, and Fire song. Yeah, it would be 
That'd be perfect. Maybe that's once upon a time in Hollywood. There you go. But prolific, shall we say? Yeah. Writing from the word go. Yeah. And I love, here's what everybody needs to go to school on. Mm-hmm. That it wasn't done in film school. Yeah. You don't need to go to film school. Mm-hmm. Just fucking sit down and write. Yeah. Find an interesting story and a cool way to tell it. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. I mean, way easier said than done. Yeah, definitely. But, but. it's it really is. Mm-hmm. that. That's that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so many, um, like like you said, like there's so many just different like ways like ways into into the industry. But the, the big one is is who you know, and he found these guys. He also owes a lot to Harvey Keitel, who bankrolled a lot to fund Reservoir Dogs, mm-hmm. and he was in it, Mister White. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he owes a lot to that man too. Yeah, but and paid him back. Fairly. Yeah, he's been in a few of his movies. He was the wolf. I love, right. that, love that character. And right. Yeah, so Tarantino's got some tropes that I would like to discuss really quickly. And these are things you're going to find in just like any of his films. Like there's the that auteur theory that like when you're watching a filmmaker's film like a Hitchcock, you know you're watching Hitchcock. When you watch De Palma even, I know I'm watching Brian De Palma oh, yeah. as much as he's kind of ripping off Hitchcock. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> yeah. That's this theory of this, the, 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 they call it the Artur theory. Tarantino fits into that. And so I, I listed a few of his things. Graphic, stylized violence, almost bordering on, I want to say, cartoonish. Yeah. Um, well, Kill Bill. Yeah, over the, t- yeah, the scene with, against the, the, crazy, the crazy 88. Crazy 8s or mm-hmm. 88s or whatever the hell mm-hmm. that is. Yes. The use of nonlinear uh, story structure. Maybe mm-hmm. not so much in this film, but in other films, yes. And the use of title cards, which that's one of my favorite things that he does. Especially when he goes like chapter one, chapter two. It's almost like I'm reading a book. Yeah. Dark sense of humor. Um, things that we laugh at that we probably shouldn't be. To shut Marvin's fucking face off. Yes. And the one I want to mention, and maybe we're going to talk about this next week, in the beginning of Inglorious Bastards when he's uh, interviewing Mansour Lapadit uh, about the if he's hiding any enemies of the state. And he whips, uh, Hans Landa whips out this very comical Sherlock Holmes pipe. It's a comedic image, but the circumstances it's being used in is not comedic in the slightest. Well, look, we mentioned it too. I know it's not presented in a humorous way, but even the discussion about Like a Virgin and the context that it's happening Mm -hmm. has an element of comedy. Definitely. Yeah. There's no way that conversation breaks out. Like, I'd be as likely to hear... (laughs) Uh, breakdown of Gloria Steinem in the men's sauna at the gym as I would that conversation that's occurring. There's a comedic element Definitely. To that. But smartly delivered. Very smartly. Here's the key. Mm-hmm. When he can restrain it a little bit. A little bit, yeah. Yeah, okay. His use of music. Mm-hmm. I would argue his oh, soundtracks yeah. are all time. Sure. All of them. Yep. Like they, they, picking songs that maybe you've heard of, but I think picking a lot of songs that people haven't heard of and then they're forever synonymous with uh, these films. How do you watch Pulp Fiction and you hear Chuck Berry's You Never Can Tell and not think of Uma Thurman and John Travolta dancing? It's impossible now. Mm-hmm. Fake products that travel through the films, the Red Apples, the Big Kahuna Burger, the Akuna Boys, uh, a Tex-Mex that's in this film. Mm-hmm. The dialogue. The dialogue itself is very unique. Um, if you look at a Steven Spielberg, they're not talking in that film the way they talk in this one. Uh, recurring actors, Samuel L. Jackson, Tim Roth, Kurt Russell, uh, and we're getting Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio again um, uh, for a second time. And uh, one that's just kind of just service, trunk shots. 
he really loves, and in this film too, opening up the trunk and showing the characters like looking uh, from above it. Like that's just it. It shows up in so many of his films, but yeah, it, it, watch any Tarantino film, you're gonna be able to check off a lot of those off your list. He's mentioned the influence of Vanishing Point in his career, mm-hmm. and I can't think of how many people watched Vanishing Point in the history of film <laughs> that didn't dissect or discover the brilliance in that movie that he was able to clearly internalize and build a philosophical approach and film from it didn't it wasn't just vanishing point but it's it's that man it's almost the same period of film that you and i talk about so i think it's like 1970 it is the last picture show it is vanishing point Mm -hmm. it is midnight cowboy it is that era of film that he's able to somehow internalize digest and then regurgitate in a philosophical vision that Ooh, is pretty... you know it now like right now yeah. like De Palma sure yeah Fincher now mm-hmm. uh, Shemilin now mm-hmm. Nolan now yep. Tarantino I didn't I could even snap fast enough yes you know mm-hmm. yeah and that's how he that's just how he rolls what is this? What the fuck is hey, this? Hey, huh? hey, hey, now that ain't got nothing to do with you. I carry that all the time. You be talking to them police too much. Oh, the police didn't try and strangle my ass. Oh, come on, girl. You know I was just playing with oh, you. Oh, I ain't playing with you. I'm going to unload both of these motherfuckers if you don't do what I tell you to do. You understand what I'm saying? Jackie, stop acting crazy. Do you understand what the fuck I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, woman, damn. Now sit your ass down on that sofa. Police start fucking with your mind, start pitting black against black. That's how they do. You know, been doing it since the beginning. Shut your raggedy ass up and sit the fuck down. And put your hands behind your head. Come on, this gets silly now. Oh, silly? You want to see some motherfucking silly? If I have to tell you to shut up one more time, I'm going to shut you up. I just came over here to talk to you. To talk? The way I see it, you and me got one motherfucking thing to talk about. One thing, and that's what you are willing to do for me. So we pick it up with um, Ordell Roby going to a bell bondsman, Max Cherry, and he's going to bail out a friend of his, uh, Beaumont Livingston, who's, you know, stuck in prison, and he's afraid he's going to, like, kind of rat him out. So he's got to get him out of there as soon as possible. But, Matt, let's take a little bit to talk about Max Cherry, played by Robert Forrester. And I've only associate Robert Forrester with two movies. It's this one, and I don't know if you've ever seen it, but there's a film from the early 80s called Alligator. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this mutant alligator in the Chicago uh, sewers that's gigantic. It's a monster movie. Mm-hmm. It's B-movie schlock, but I love it. He was a bit of a B-movie actor, much like Pam Greer, um, kind of in this 70s kind of grungy, grindhousey, crimey, exploitation movement. Yeah. And... Kind of like didn't have much of a career, and it's it's so great that he had this this part in here because I think he empathetically really sells his character as a by the books bail bondsman who's going to do his job from A to B, and then he's the one that kind of through his own kind of infatuation with Jackie gets thrust into this hustle. Right place, wrong time. Mm-hmm. Ordell Roby just happens to show up and kind of use him. Maybe it's because it's the closest. I'm not exactly sure. But, uh, yeah, right place, wrong time. But the right person in the right place at the wrong time. Yes. The thing that I really appreciate about about Max Cherry in this film is how understated 
and in control he seems to be the entire movie. Oh, definitely, yeah. And so he's, we, he's got gangsters and everyone breathing down his throat, and he doesn't blink an eye. As far as as smart as Pam Greer's character, Jackie Brown, is in the film, I think Robert Forrester matches her. I think the reason that she gets the nod is he's so infatuated with her that she tends to almost film noir him in a femme fatale sort of way without the dire or sinister intentions that the femme fatale usually has in noir. But she certainly chumps him along using his affections for her in the movie Mm -hmm. and even addresses it under a bit of a veiled commentary here and there with him. Mm -hmm. But she certainly plays him into that. And here's the crazy thing is like Mm -hmm. we come to find at the end of the movie she actually maybe wasn't playing him the way a traditional war sure. femme fatale was. Yeah. She actually had some feelings for him as well. Yeah. Anyway, back to the Max Cherry character. He's sort of stuck in a strip mall in a thousand square feet, if maybe it's even 500, mm-hmm. with one assistant that's part-time. Yeah. And this guy who is the dude that you would you know, pass at Baskin-Robbins and forget about... Mm-hmm is so far ahead. <laughs> Doesn't he look like the guy that you're yes, sitting behind yes. in line at Baskin-Robbins? <laughs> Definitely. The guy that you eating vanilla ice cream or maybe Cherry's Jubilee because it's like a Friday night. Yeah. Very understated, brilliantly understated. It almost makes me wonder, why did we miss mm-hmm. Robert Forster? Yeah. What could have been? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So from here we go to... Can I say one more thing that's really interesting about Robert Forster? Sure, go ahead. He makes an appearance in a show in 2003 and 2004 okay. based on an Elmore Leonard character with Carla Gugino, mm. Gugino called Karen Sisko. Oh, yes, yes. Karen Sisko is the Jennifer Lopez character from Out of Sight. Mm-hmm. It shows the listeners out there. I'm trying to expand the listeners' uh, knowledge of Elmore Leonard and just how far mm-hmm. his expanse reached without them really knowing it. And here's the really weird thing about him: mm-hmm. for as successful as he was, mm-hmm. it's also as unrecognizable contemporarily as most of his stuff is. And can I say just real quick, an expanse I think that has yet to be fully tapped. I just don't know if it's ever been if it's ever been done. Like I don't know why people didn't see Out of Sight. Yeah. Clooney and Lopez at the height of their power. It's sexy. It's funny. Don Cheadle. It's really smart. Like, it's a brilliant film. Mm-hmm. And no one saw it. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. Maybe release date? I'm not sure. Sure. I don't know. But he, he did. He's He wrote like 50 plus novels yeah. and westerns. Do you yeah. know what western he did write? No. 310 to Yuma. Are you kidding me? He wrote the original story yeah. of 310 to Yuma? That's all, you can't Leonard. be serious. No, I'm serious. Wow. Okay, people, go get your selection of, of Elmore Leonard and get going. I had no idea, Jesse. That You just blew my mind. Mm-hmm. Wow. Good for you. Look at the research. Excellent. Yeah, there we go. Hashtag backstudy. Hashtag, there we go. But, hmm. you know, Ordell goes immediately to kill Beaumont because he just can't trust him at this point. He's going to blow his whole gun running operation, kills him in the trunk. We get the trunk shot that I mentioned earlier. And then immediately to Lewis and tells him, look, we got to dispose of this body. I got a 500000 in Cabo that I need to find a way to get get up here. And then that's how we find out that Jackie's involved with this because we're back to Jackie at her job, coming back from one of her laborious trips to Cabo, and we get um, her stopped by uh, LAPD and ATF, Ray Nicolette, uh, played by Michael Keaton. And 
they plant some drugs in her in in her in her bag on top of everything else. So she goes to she goes to prison or, or is about to go to before she gets bailed out. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's perfect. I have nothing to add. Go, keep going. Yeah. So, so then again, this is where we bring the Max Cherry thing full circle. Ordell goes to him. You know, I need ten thousand for her. Ten thousand seems a little high for that. Well. Um, he goes agrees to go pick her up. I don't exactly know the duties of a bail bondsman, but he's gonna go pick her up from from prison and take take her take her home. Can I ask you a question? Go Let ahead. Me stop you for go a ahead. second. Did you ever think in the watching of this movie mm-hmm. that that should have been the opening scene in this film? Ordell showing up with Max Cherry to have the discussion about how brothers sometimes need ten thousand dollars and the unfair practices of the police. Because I would argue to you right now in this moment... This is where the film starts. <laughs> and that that's a better depiction, yes, and that's a better depiction of Ordell Roby's character, fast-talking, quick on his feet, angling, than the gun-running bit with Robert De Niro is. And here's why. He has a willing participant in the conversation. Mm-hmm. i got to backtrack one more quick thing because I just asked you a question, then let me throw this in there. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, Robert Forster was nominated for yeah. Best Supporting Actor in this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably way past the time that he should have been nominated. Yeah. Just look at his filmography on IMDb, people, and you can see the stuff that he did. It's mostly really forgettable. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, what about that? Is that where the movie should start? I don't know. Like Now that you mention it, that does sound like a better natural starting place for the nexus of the story because this is maybe what we call the inciting incident. Yeah. Or at, but, least the, at least the opening. Yeah. So the... the, the this is what thirty-eight minutes in was is what you what you clocked it. Yeah, thirty-eight forty minutes in. Mm-hmm. We do get the introduction of all the players, the the setting of the chessboard here before we can start making moves. Um, is that the right move? I don't know. Maybe not. Does it bother me as much as you? Probably not. But I could agree with you that yeah, the the film the the nexus of where we're going to with this hustle begins here. Yeah, and he picks her up, and I love this shot of her coming down the. That walkway to Natural High, the song Natural High, and he's just like, he's just instantly just like, oh my god, like who is this? You know, the more I think about this now, the opening with Jackie Brown and the graduate bit you were talking about to Natural High mm-hmm. isn't the beginning of her story either. Yeah. It's when she gets popped in the parking lot by Ray Nicolette with the money. Mm-hmm. So I almost wonder if either one of those two could be a better jumping in point starting at jumping in point what the hell is that starting point than where we actually begin it could be but if no one's gonna like again here tarantino after pulp fiction you'd most definitely have exactly who's gonna put him in check at that point? you have carte blanche on whatever you want to put in your screenplay exactly who's gonna tell you no start the film at the 40 minute mark no no you're yeah it's fair yeah So we kind of get this, and they kind of get to know each other a little bit. I always like that red, dingy lighting in that whatever nightclub that, or um, that restaurant they went into. I just yeah. associate that with the '90s. Like, it, it, the, there's a restaurant. Not Vertigo. Not not Vertigo, but like just the dingy leather, <laughs> dingy leather, uh, low lighted uh, types of lounges. Like that's like so '90s to me. Like. Maybe it's just because my grandfather took me to some of those. I, I just associate that with the, with the 90s. This won't make sense to anybody that's not proper 505 in the queue. Yeah. It reminds me of Paul's Monterey Inn. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Doesn't it? <laughs> it does. You could walk into Paul's Monterey Inn yeah. and literally smell the smoke from the 1970s 
caked into the carpet on the wall. I don't know. And then you wouldn't be able to see anything in front of you because the lighting was left to your little candle on your table. Dude, to Paul's Monterey Inn, <laughs> yeah. the place that I spent many a breakfast or a birthday dinner at. Paul's Monterey God Inn. God bless that place. But yeah, that, that's like straight out of like this film. Yeah. So she goes home. Ordell's kind of coming to pay her a visit. And he's he's going to put her out. Like, yep. The, it's the Beaumont situation. He can't trust her. And this is where we get the Jackie. This is where we get the Jackie that we uh, that we are going to associate, you know, with with this film is just kind of this really intense. She's not going to take any more shit after this prison stint, and yeah. she turns the tables on him. And this is where we kind of get we get running with the plot here is we're going to get this money back from Cabo, and this is how we're going to do it. I got to I got to be able to like I got I'm going to go talk to to the feds and this is the, I like this I, let's see where you kind of fall in I don't know where Jackie's uh, intentions lie the first time watching this whether she's really trying to help Ordell because she doesn't want to be killed does she really want to help the feds because they, they can like help get her off off the books or does she really want to help Max because she's taken an infatuation to Max as well I don't know who she's trying to help because she's telling everybody everything at this point and you don't really know because the movie is presented from so many different angles and so many partial stories and mm-hmm. conversations that we don't hear. Yeah. This is the part of the film I like the most. Is this what they call like the, tr- the, the trial run of the heist? Because what they end up doing, and this is just classic Elmore Leonard, is they end up just telling too many people their business. He tells Lewis about it, and Lewis is just like zombieing his way there until like Mr. Three Pump Chump like gives... Gives Melanie three minutes of of, of hell, but then they, <laughs> if even yeah, three pump chomp, yeah, two pump Pete, yeah, there you go. And now they want a piece of the action. So yeah. that the, I, I, what Tarantino's good at is presenting a scenario and then just like screwing it up as much as possible with the characters and 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 their involvement. So you ask me, and I'll, I'll give you what I think works best for me. Okay. I do think that she has a loyalty to Robert Forster, the Max Cherry character, but not until later in the movie. I think when she first is challenged by Ordell and he shows up with bad intentions, she is doing everything in her power to not die in that moment. And that's part of the arc that Jackie presents to me in this film is how she goes from essentially pawn to puppet master by the time the movie's done. We see her grow up, mature, and have to increase the capacity to hustle at a higher level mm-hmm. The movie, as the movie moves on. Mm-hmm. Stakes go up. Her being one step ahead of those that wish to do her ill harm. Yeah. Also, uh, you know, the stakes goes up on that as well. So she's got to turn it up. This one goes to 11. Mm-hmm. She's got to turn it up. Yeah. Now, she finds a willing participant in Robert Forster. And she does repay him. Mm-hmm. Like, she doesn't fuck him. Yeah. She, like, oh, over. Yeah. She doesn't lie to him and she makes that very clear at the end of the film and I'm pretty sure at the end of the film mm-hmm. if he would say yes that they would go together yeah. and they would be together Yeah. again that's also part of the perplexing bit to me at the end of the movie but I think Jackie's angling for Jackie through the first third of the film it's angling for Jackie like the first third of the film was Jackie angling to stay alive mm-hmm. the second third of the film is Jackie angling 
to stay out of jail. And the third film is Jackie angling for Jackie and Max. Mm-hmm. That's the three parts of her story beginning, okay. middle, and end that I see. I would, and here's where I would tell you the nexus of, of Jackie Brown's story. And it's kind of done in this scene when Max visits her or the next day and she plays the Delphonics for him. I mm-hmm. love that song too, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, she tells, that's when she gives him the bit of, Look, Max, I make 14000 a year working for this shitty airline, for the worst airline in the world. Like, what do I have to live like live for? And it's like, I'm afraid more than anything, Max, of having to start over. If I go to prison, I lose out on this job, which she's very fond of, actually, as much as it's so belittling. Provided her something better than what she might have come from. Yeah. Even in this Shantate apartment that yeah. she lives in, yeah. it's better than maybe where she came. And that goes back to the song, yes. 110th Strength. Okay, mm-hmm. keep going. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, yeah. Her fear is, I go to prison for whatever, how this is going to play out, and I have to start that over. I won't even have that. I'm that much lower than that job. And... Man, by, by 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 film's end to go from from that, and we see that from the hustle to the terminal to this moment now to how she's going to make it work for herself to the way she essentially drives off. I don't, don't want to be so eloquent, but into the sunset mm-hmm. with the money to do this new life. Like she's she's past having to start over. So you just iterated what I asked you earlier, mm-hmm. and I think that. You're in the same place I am. Mm-hmm. Is the movie about Jackie Brown or is the movie about 110th Street? Because the fact that that's her serenade song as she drives off into the sunset mm-hmm. is sort of the eulogy on what was. Yeah. But is that song driving her character arc or is she driving her character arc scored with that song? I think when the- we get done, do yeah. me a favor, please, when we get done to that, yeah. I just want you to go back. And just listen to the lyrics, the the words mm-hmm. of Womack's yeah. lyrics in that 110th Street. And tell me, because you, you're at the same place, yeah. even though you didn't say it the same way, mm-hmm. where I am right now. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think, I don't think of... I don't know how I feel about that. But I don't think a character can define a song. I think that the song helps portray the character's... Unless the song was the inspiration for the character. And I'm not being hard on that. Yeah. That's the entire graduate in a sense. Yeah. At least for us, the viewer. Sure. I, it's, that's why I said this film is perplexing to me in that regard. Yeah, yeah. I, it makes it really interesting. And we could have a discussion about that. Yeah. And break down that song with the moments of the, the nexus or quintessential moments in her character. Mm-hmm. And this would be a circular debate we would never come to any conclusion on. Okay. I just think it's worth pondering as Tarantino was familiar with that song, mm-hmm. did it drive Jackie or did Rum Punch drive Jackie? Okay. Well, let's get right to it. Let's yeah. get to the shining jewel of the, of, of the film, which they've been building to, which is actually this heist. So let's break down how this heist is going to play out. Okay. So okay. Jackie's going to bring back the 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 500,000 and they're going to make uh, an exchange. Originally, they're going to exchange with some someone else, but that that's not going to play out. So Jackie's gonna bring bring this money back, and they're gonna meet up at the the local mall, wherever where, whatever mall that is, and they're gonna go into the dressing room and make and make an exchange through through the dressing room, and it's at this moment where Jackie's gonna kind of you know do a bit of a switch switcheroo on on herself. Okay, so hold on, let's pump the break for one second. Go ahead, because yeah. there's two there's two trials. Mm-hmm. There is the initial one to teach Ray Nicolette how the money exchange goes down. Yeah. 
and then the second one, which is how it's supposed to go in and how it doesn't. Now, mm-hmm. this is in the screenwriting world, the setup and the payoff. Yeah. So we've been an hour 15 of setup mm-hmm. to another setup, which is here's how we exchange the money. And the ATF watches the exchange happen between this very country. I think her name is Simone or mm-hmm. is that yep. Sh- Simone? Yep. Mm-hmm. Exchange that has a twist in it at the end that Robert Forster sees, Max Cherry, that the girl that they thought was going to get actually gets it. But there's another element with the same bag that could actually be the third wheel or the third spoke in the wheel mm-hmm. to pull the greatest turn on the ATF and they get the money. Yep. So they watch this go off seamlessly, except for the fact mm-hmm. that Odell Roby mm-hmm. sees Max Cherry there just by chance. Because he just happens to be there on the day watching a movie. Wait, no, yeah. Mm-hmm. The fr- and the yes. trial mm-hmm. run mm-hmm. just happens to be there. Yeah. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Has Jackie been behind the scenes pulling the strings and setting it up so that he would be there to see how it works? Mm-hmm. Or is it just this sort of conspicuous moment where, like, serendipitously it just happened? Yeah. I don't know. Okay, so we watch the money exchange go on underneath the table Mm -hmm. of the food court in the mall. And seems like it could happen. So this is where we get the the money exchange in the the dressing room here at at Billingsley's. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But this is where Tarantino kind of plays with time a little bit. And we see this three separate times. The first time we see it with Jackie as she goes in there and kind of switches out the money in the bag she weights them with books to make it seem like there is 500k in here but um 550k uh and then she slides another thing for for melanie here and then we get the second turn is with uh lewis and and melanie (laughs) this is it's my favorite bit too when they they roll up and they're just like back and forth with with each other and and she goes in, gets gets the, the the money, and we see it from De Niro's perspective, and that's where he kind of sees Max Cherry kind of off to the side, and but and he's never met him before, like, but he was just in his shop that day, the Bell of Bondsman early at the beginning, and then the third time we get is with um with Max, and we kind of see how that plays all out. Do you like this the, this sequence here, like? I do. I love it. Just the way it's kind of cut together and interplayed. Like I like when films kind of show me. The same scene from multiple perspectives. De Palma does this with split screen. Sure. But here we get three separate instances. Whether it's sisters or or Carrie, like he's a master at that. Can I mention just an example of this that I think is brilliant? Yeah, of course. And it's in Superbad. And it's when Jonah Hill ah. goes to buy booze at the store. And he's trying to weigh out how this will work out if he just buys it. If he has to fight this guy. If he gets his old lady to buy it for him. And it all plays out in his head in a variety of different ways, but none of it actually happened. Well, 500 Days of Summer, too, right? Reality Definitely. Expectations. There you go. Yeah. Okay, so as much as I like that scene, let me step back for a minute. Jackie has set up this entire sequence to basically trick the ATF yes. and, with the help of Max, mm-hmm. abscond with the 500K mm-hmm. off to Mexico, quote unquote Mexico. Yep. Here's the. Pr- okay, so something bothered me about this sequence. I told you I watched the last. Well, I watched the last hour and a half of this three times, but I watched the entire movie twice okay. in, in the last week. Okay. Something bothered me about that, and I couldn't figure out what it was. And plus, it gave me a chance to watch Pam Greer again, and I love Pam, there you Pam go. Greer. I'm literally... to Pam, Also, to Pam Greer. Amen, Pam and Greer. And by the way, if you guys want to read a crazy story, mm-hmm. 
the story of her and Richard Pryor is not one that's suitable for this podcast. <laughs> quickly on that, yeah. engaged to Lou Alcindor, who mm-hmm. becomes Kareem Abdul-Jabbar before he converts to Islam. Yep. And then upon his conversion to Islam, he presents Pam Greer with this ultimatum. Marry me or I've got a woman who's been prepped for me this afternoon. She says, well, maybe you'll enjoy having multiple wives in the Islam faith, Islamic faith. Mm-hmm. He makes the conversion, kicks Pam Greer to the curb. She walks off and he gets married two o'clock that afternoon. Yeah, crazy. What the fuck? Yeah. And if you think that story is crazy, <laughs> yeah. go read the the Richard Pryor, Richard Pryor story and what cocaine had to do in the triangle relationship the three of them built together. Jesus Christ. Yeah. God bless Pam Greer. God bless her. No, seriously. Mm-hmm. Okay, so something bothered me about that. Okay. And the first thing I said, okay, I know what it is. Mm-hmm. The exchange of the money in the dressing room, which provides cover, yes. happens at a department store called Billingsley. Mm-hmm. Now, what troubled me at first is if you were trying to be inconspicuous about that, would you walk into Billingsley shopping for a suit as cover with a bag filled with beach towel from the store you were shopping in? That immediately puts this very incapable gal that's running the front desk but nonetheless on alert like why is she coming into my store from the mall Mm -hmm. with the billingsley bag with no return Mm -hmm. so that troubled me i'm like oh i've got it but there's another twist to this okay we watch pam greer move through the mall carrying that billingsley bag in her right hand with her satchel over her left shoulder yeah when she okay we see her moving into the entrance of billingsley Cut to her mm-hmm. inside Billingsley's looking at the mannequin with that black and white suit. Okay. And guess what suddenly disappeared? Mm. The, the bag. The Billingsley bag. Mm-hmm. Tarantino forgot to shoot it. And I hate to be that, oh, well, in this scene, there's four bullets. And in this scene, there's three. Yeah. Like, I hate that mm-hmm. because people make mistakes in film. Yeah. But if you're going to spend 90 plus minutes mm-hmm. prepping me and set up for the exchange of this bag, mm-hmm. then by God, you better fucking have the bag in her hand when she walks into the store and it's just gone, <clears throat> which is probably an oversight mm-hmm. back to what I said. If she shows up in Billingsley as the puppet master who's pulling all the strings that has all the angles figured out, you wouldn't walk into that store yeah. with a department bag from the place you're shopping as you enter. Yeah. And look at it, Jesse. When she's I watched it five, six times. <laughs> she's standing there in front of the mannequin yeah. with the satchel over her left shoulder, okay. and her legs are slightly scissored, staggered, mm-hmm. and in her right hand is nothing. Mm-hmm. The bag's just disappeared. Then we go back into the dressing room, and lo and behold, the bag is back. Brother, I got to tell you, again, with what I just said, I hate the little minutia this and that. Yeah. But it's what the whole entire film is about. Yeah. About this bag. And it's gone. Mm -hmm. But then reappears? That is a huge, huge problem. Yeah. For you, though. I, I maybe for the story. Yeah. How do you how do you how do you miss that? Yeah. That's three O. Mm-hmm. The guy's throwing nothing close to the strike zone. The bases are loaded. You need to walk in, run to get out of the game, and you foul out on a bad ball that you fouled off in the ninth inning in, in foul territory in first base. The only the only oh. yeah the only comeuppance I can give to that would be that Tarantino's making allusions to that that grindhousey type of thing where there was they were just made such on the cheap. 
uh, type of films where the boom would show on the thing, but I look. Okay. You know, yeah, not, it's, I agree. I totally agree with that. Yeah, and me and my wife had a pretty pretty good d- debate about this okay. last night too. Got pretty fiery. <laughs> if you're gonna spend that much time setting it up, yeah, you can't miss on that. Yeah, you have to find a way either through diligence mm-hmm. to not forget that the bag is in her hand or do something else so that you can make the bag not be this red light yeah. that alerts the people to something's going on. Yeah. It doesn't even need to be a Billingsley bag. Yeah. It can be a version of the satchel that she has on her shoulder. Mm-hmm. They don't necessarily need the Billingsley bag. Yeah. I don't know why it's they chose go- that. Like, please, when we get done, you're going to go back and watch that and you're yeah. going to say, holy shit. <laughs> Because it, it kills. It doesn't kill it for me, this though. This exchange. It doesn't kill it for me. It's a huge breaking point for me. Okay. Okay. So we so we, we finally get that. Lewis and Melanie take take off with what they think is the money, but they got the book bag uh, this time. And again, that, that, that kind of that, that the, the two cats fighting. And he just guns her in the parking lot and just kind of takes off. I was like, oh, it was right here, right where I parked it. He picks up Ordell and kind of goes through. He's like, yeah, there was the whole thing and everything, and I had to shoot her. You shot Melanie? Like, oh, my God. And then he finds that the, the bag is filled with $50,000 in essentially books. books. Like, just paperback books. Don't you wish the books in there had been Elmore Leonard books, though? Would that have been two on the nose? No. Okay. <laughs> I, I thought about that when At I At least one or two. When I was watching it, I was like. Like, Rum Punch has got to be in that yeah. bag. Yeah, that would have been interesting. Because it's like Harlequin romance shit. Yeah, just like yeah, they have Daniel Steele books. <laughs> my, mom, my mom used to read them. <laughs> okay. They're good. Yeah. So he does that, and then just through just kind of how that plays out, he's like, "Well, Jesus, well, they, they're trying to screw me, probably." Or, or or Del Roby is just in total panic mode right now, and so he's like, "I'm gonna kill. I gotta kill this guy now." Like everything is just coming apart at the seams, and then here comes Max Sherry, and they're the ones that make off with the real money. Right. Yeah. So let's get to our final little bits of the of the film here, where Ordell wants Jackie now. He wants his money. He wants to. There's like there's gonna be no negotiating. He's gonna kill her regardless. So I like this bit where Max goes to to Ordell to kind of negotiate. Like, look, she's she's at my office. She's waiting for you. She wants to make a deal. This and that. Uh, it's it's a good move for Max. It's it's kind of where we see. You know, Max kind of like being being a part of, of this part of the plan for them. And, you know, they take this back to his office. And I guess maybe this is where I kind of don't like how the film ends a little bit. I want maybe more of a confrontation and Jackie just kind of goes like they turn the lights on. Michael Keaton like comes into the frame and he's like, Ray, he has a gun and they just shoot him down in the movie. And then that's it. You know what I mean? I do. I, I think they could have played a little bit more with that. But I don't know, maybe not. We're already getting into like the two-hour, 25-minute mark of this film. Okay, that's a very fair criticism. There's no way this movie is two, you know, 150 minutes. Mm-hmm. This is a 120-minute movie max. I just, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I, I said it earlier. Let me, I'm getting myself confused no, here. No, go ahead. Um, the last 40 minutes of this movie for me are complete shit. And it's that what I just told you, From the, the bag being gone... And then the more I thought about that, what mm-hmm. really troubled me was in American Hustle, Okay. the con job essentially comes <laughs> You're down to what? You're going to bring up that. No, it comes in, but what does it come down to? He's wearing a wire. Yes. Bullshit. Mm-hmm. Wearing a wire. Yeah. 
that's not quite as bad as, oh, it was all a dream. Yeah. But it's not far from it. Mm-hmm. Is the entire angling that Jackie builds on this mm-hmm. a fucking bag that you think is A when it's actually B? Oh, okay. Not as bad as a wire and certainly not as bad as a dream sequence. But I, for me, personally, it is so simple. Mm-hmm. For Jackie, that is a mastermind this whole film, yeah. it does not do... I call her the puppet master. Doesn't do her justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, there's some other elements in there, but it comes down to, they can't see because we're in the dressing room. Mm-hmm. So give me the other bag and I'll give you this bag. Yeah. And then what I just said, that little tirade that I just went yeah, on yeah, about yeah. the bag not even being there. Yeah. Okay, so strike one and two like this. Mm-hmm. And this is after, I think it's, I looked at, I think it's 135 minutes, no, uh, an hour and 35 minutes into this film. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then everything that you said occurs, goes, shakes out, mm-hmm. and then... Jackie, somehow at the end of this film, we see her make a call or take a call from Ordell Roby yes. after Robert Forster has said, hey, I'm going to bring you back your $10,000. Yes. And Ordell says, look, dude, I know she has the money. He's figured it out. And Max drives Ordell back to Cherry Bail Bonds. Mm-hmm. Jackie's sitting in the dark. Mm-hmm. And she's practiced pulling the gun out of the drawer and capping his ass the minute he walks in and it's just too slow and she fumbles with it and it's just not going to play. Yeah. So instead, after having a conversation <clears throat> with the ATF in the previous three scenes, yeah. lying to them about what happened, she, after talk to Ordell Roby, called Ray Nicolette to come clean and have him show up so that when Ordell comes in with Robert Forster, he can come around the corner and Cole's blast shoot him? Yeah, I'm not going to disagree with That's you. That's fucking bullshit, I'm dude. not going to disagree with you on this Okay, one. but wait, let, I want to ask you a question. Okay. Okay. If it's taken yeah. two hours to get to that ending... Yeah, no, it's not satisfying. It's not. I, I, I've always I've always liked... To me, the high point is this this high spit because I like the interplay between all the characters and then the, the juxtaposition of time. But... I want the payoff to like how this that's going to play out, and I never get that with this film. No, like I've never I've, first time watching it, this time watching it, whenever I've watched it, it's just Jackie Ray, needs to angle this, yeah, so that she screws the ATF because Ray Nicolette is not likable in this movie, and mm-hmm. he's not likable and out of sight either. Mm-hmm. To where her and Max have a chance at the end. Mm-hmm. Because Max has been good. So, like, if she's ahead of them as the puppet master and then loyal to Max, Mm -hmm. Jackie Brown might be one of my favorite characters in film ever. I mean, up there with Piper Laurie Mm -hmm. and The Hustle. Mm -hmm. Like, literally. Like, up in that. And you know how rare that status is for me. Yeah. And I don't know how the the, the writing or the creation of this screenplay or the book, and I don't know if it ends kind of the same way. But I don't know how they kind of ended up on her not killing him and kind of this way. It's why does she go straight? I don't know. It's it, it, Matt. It's it's never worked for me either. To me, like the, the this film needed an ending that wasn't this, and that's that that's kind of that for me. So perplexing is what I've said now for the third time in this. This yeah. is what's perplexing to me. Mm-hmm. Tarantino takes absolute deliberate processes. To build up the setup and the payoff of the money exchange, despite the fact that I think it doesn't work because he fucking misses the most obvious thing, which yeah. is that bag bit that I went over. Mm-hmm. What in this film that is as deliberate as it is, which is in no hurry to be done, mm-hmm. and a character study, a character study mm-hmm. is the moment 
where Jackie decides I'm going to go straight because my argument to my own question or my answer to my own question, which I've just posed to you, mm-hmm. is it doesn't happen until she's driving away in the car to that 110th Street song mm-hmm. and she recognizes that's the life I want to leave behind. Okay. Which includes Max. Yeah. But that doesn't happen yet. Yeah. Does it happen in the interrogation room? Does it happen in the dressing room when she's looking at her reflection in the mirror? Those are all far too subtle for the audience to subtle. wrap their mind around. The other time that happens, too, is when they're in the food court there and she says, Max, if you say you're retiring, like if you had the opportunity to get 500000 would you take it? She asks Ray the same question mm-hmm. and they both tell her no. Yeah. And that makes her go straight? Yeah. Why? No, no, I, I agree with you. I'm not going to disagree with you on that one. Yeah, this this ending doesn't fit the character that whatever Tarantino was building up to until after the film ends, and it's a scene that maybe we don't, we never get. Yeah. But can I just say, I do like the last little seven minutes of Go. this film. All right, we'll break it down for him. So, yeah, so we're back at the Bill Bondsman. Some time's passed. Uh, she's uh, going to be heading off to Spain, I believe she said. And she, do you want to come? Or I, I, I want to pay you more, and he doesn't want any more money. Like fifty thousand of the five hundred and fifty, mm-hmm. I think he takes. And he's kind of he's enough, and it looks like Max Max is going to be working for the foreseeable future yeah. as much as he wanted to retire. But I think they have a real nice moment too, where there's a real like electricity between the two of them, where you know he does contemplate, what if I did just run away with her, and I wish he would come with me. You know, they share a nice intimate moment there. but A it, kiss and... Yeah, it's interrupt, interrupted by the next bail. Can I ask you a question, though? Yeah. The line that she asks him, mm-hmm. Max, do I scare you? Or Max, are you afraid of me? Mm-hmm. And he gives her the little half an inch between his thumb and index finger, mm-hmm. the gesture. Do you buy that? Yeah. Why? Just because of, of what I would call the the, the hustle of, of, the, of this film what I like about you is the character that I saw walking down to natural high, but at the same time, you got me involved with a bunch of crazy motherfuckers. Because I agree with you. Yeah. Like, I actually believe it too, mm-hmm. like tragically. Yeah. I feel like it's a very sad ending, not only for Jackie, but also for Max, because mm-hmm. they probably could be pretty good together. Uh huh. This isn't a romance. No, though. it's not. But it's one of the subtextual storylines in the film that I think makes it work. Mm-hmm. And it's what the movie ends on. And I just also, again, perplexing for yeah. me. Because I think I'll, I'll let you finish. Because, yeah. or, or can I finish it? Well, let me just say, I think perplexing for you because it doesn't wrap up her story arc or give any comeuppance to that. But I like the way the film ends with just this, it's maybe about a minute, just on her driving away to 110th Street. As she, and then she starts seeing, seeing along to it. I like how this film ends. It, it, it ends where it began on our main character, Jackie Brown. The film's titled with her. But I think at this point, I think she stuck it to the to the man. And that's what these exploitation films were all about. Whether it was Shaft or Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. With, <laughs> have you ever seen that one with Mario yeah, Van Peebles? Yeah. But uh, she's done that. And in the man in this one with Samuel L. Jackson, she's won that one. Whether it was by her hand or someone else, she's in a better place now than she was at the beginning. Okay, I think, all right, that's that's very fair. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good estimation of the film. Mm-hmm. My argument to that would be, and again, only personally, what, again, perplexes me in that, mm-hmm. is if that's what the movie is, is her sticking it to the man, which is Ordell Roby. Yeah. He shouldn't be black. Mm-hmm. 
if it's true black exploitation film mm-hmm. cinema. Yeah. And number two is it shouldn't end with this bittersweet moment between her and Max. Yeah. Because here's where I always get get hung up. And I don't need a pretty pink bow on no. my movies that say this is what's... I, I don't need that. I, like, never, I don't need... I never need that. I don't need the monologue at the end of Gangs of New York in every film. <laughs> they lived happily ever after. I don't need that. No. His moment, Max Cherry's moment with Jackie Brown is broken up with a phone call from another potential bail bondsman, mm-hmm. which essentially then gives Jackie an ultimatum, which is... Do I wait for Street Life? Yeah. Which I think is actually more appropriate song for Jackie than 110th Street, mm-hmm. but Street Life or Straight and Narrow Life, Fresh Start, Go Be a Ghost and Start All Over. Mm-hmm. Max Cherry is still involved with the crime element, which then, if she's going to be with him, makes her role with the crime element. Yeah. Okay, so the phone call breaks up the moment between the two of them, but here's what what the movie misses on. Okay. If Max is going to be the businessman, let him be the businessman. But he waits long enough for Jackie to get in the car and drive away with no expediation of hurrying the fuck up to get off the phone Mm -hmm. to say, Jackie, I'm going with you. Yeah. Because he ends the phone call, she drives away, and we're left watching him essentially in a blurred shot with his hands on his head, pondering what might have been. Yeah. I know ambiguity is something that you like and bookending is something that you like, but what troubles me with this, that comes across as just lazy and he didn't know where to go with that. Yeah, but I think it also fits Max's character at the same time because Max to me in a nutshell is he's a character with one foot in the door and one foot out. But he would go to all those lengths to protect and and care for Jackie, but he wouldn't end a phone call five seconds earlier? I don't know. Again, perplexing to me. Because I think he doesn't kind of want to leave that that world. As much as he wants out of that and wants that mysterious life with the girl that scares him this much, I don't think think that 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 works for him either. I know, but then, okay, so another perplexing moment then is the moment between him and her and the first money exchange in the mall when he tells her that he's going to hang it up, that he's ready to be retired. Yeah. I'm trying, man. I'm trying. That's why I watched it. Two more times. Well, three times this week. I'm trying. Yeah. I just can't get there. <laughs> good thing the film ends here. <laughs> no, not yeah. a good thing. Yeah. Give me like a, a you fucking w- two hours and ten minutes. Let's put another 15 You in. want a three-hour film? I don't know. That I could- don't want Red and Andy on the beach and say Watanao, but I want something pretty goddamn close to it. Yeah. I don't know if I want that. Jackie deserves a better ending. Yeah. And Max is a better ending. I and think, so does he. I think I get it when she's walking away. I think I get what she's been aiming for this the, the, this this whole time. Okay. Let's leave it at that. Fair enough. I think we <laughs> disagree on that one. Okay, excellent. Okay, good. So let's rate this film. So we got Rock Up, we got Well, Call, Single Barrel, and Top Shelf. I would call Redemption Bourbon right now a single barrel. Me I think too. we got a very special one here. Yeah. Uh, but where's Jackie Brown falling on this spectrum for you, Matt? You want me to go first or you want to go first? You go first. This is crazy because it has two characters that I absolutely adore in this film, mm-hmm. Max Turi and Jackie Brown. This movie is barely well for me. Okay. Three times through, I am so frustrated <laughs> and perplexed with Tarantino's lack of ability to deliver on a story that he set me up in two plus hours for. Mm-hmm. And when Pam Greer and you guys can find the article online to come out and say any of these endings would have been better than what this guy shot. Mm-hmm. And she's on set with the guy. Yeah. Then it, I mean, it's it's close to. I I can't give it rot gut, and I want so bad to like this film. Yeah, because I liked it initially. Mm-hmm. 
And then, like I told you, there was something about that scene that was off and the more and more I broke it down. And again, not to be like, oh, well, in this scene, his fingernail is painted and this like. Oh, that's bullshit. Fuck all that. Yeah. But it's important in the money exchange that he gets that right. And he does it. And then that money's money's like the MacGuffin of this film. The last 40 minutes of this film for me fall apart. Mm -hmm. The ending's terrible. Ray Nicolette shoots Odell. Ordell, sorry. And it's, I hate it. It's. Is it your least favorite Tarantino film? No. Okay. It's not. All right. All right. Fair enough. I, I'm so apologetic in that rating. I'm so I want it to be, I want it to be better. Yeah. Because I love, I, literally, Jesse. Yeah. I love Robert Forster. I love them. Mm-hmm. I love Pam Greer in this film. Yeah. All right. Excellent. Go ahead. I'm going to fall in. Um, you know, we, I think you and I and, times past have like tiered directors like filmographies like Hitchcock like he's got like that top tier and there's like five films there and then there's like a bunch of four star and then there's everything else and then there's Topaz (laughs) there's Topaz (laughs) right and Frenzy yeah right I think Tarantino has the same thing yeah so like his top tier is like I'm not gonna mention what it is because we'll get into that but to me Jackie Brown's a bottom tier Tarantino film a four star Tarantino film so I'm gonna go single barrel here Primarily because you know, you know, single barrel, not I'll, even call. No, I'll go single. I'll go wow. single barrel. I like this film. I like that sequence in the middle as much as it frustrates you. I can let the bygones be bygones in that, in that instance because I like the playing of time and the exchange and how it kind of manipulates all these different characters and people that they spent a good amount of time setting up. And I'm an Elmore Leonard guy. This is just like classic. This is like classic scenario for him. This kind of like. Money exchange, characters that all want a piece of the action, but they're all just going to fuck up the action at the same time. Mm-hmm. I like that. I love the performances. I love this soundtrack. Yeah, as do I. I, I. I I love the cinematography, which, you know, we don't spend a lot of, not nearly enough time talking about the aesthetics of filmmaking, which are definitely part of it. But there's a lot of great, brilliant shots in, in this. Oh, he's celebrating Kent Pam Greer in this film. In yeah. every shot that he takes. And I think he's really good at that, celebrating the actors, but also celebrating the films that he's um, paying homage to. The Graduate, exploitation Cinema, things like that. Um, it's it's not my favorite Tarantino film, but I think it's just one that... But damn, he still gave it top shelf. No, no. A single Barrel. Single Barrel. I think people should see it because I think it just gets forgotten in his filmography, you know, because it's kind of sandwiched in between those those those, those two films there. Yeah, it is tough. Like it's yeah. it's the follow up to the masterpiece. Exactly, and that's that's unbreakable there. Or to, magnificent to an, Amberson to, to an or, extent, right, yeah. yes. And you know, and it's and the, the, when they're heisting in this film, I really like it, and I don't think we get enough of that in cinema anymore. Okay, like that's just a genre that's like non-existent very much the way of the western and the musical i don't disagree we both like crime drama we yeah. both really whether it be my noir or your noir we both are fans of that so agree and i'm with agreement exactly so yeah and i think i think there's things to like about it again there's i there i gravitate towards other tarantino films if i'm gonna pop one in uh to watch on a sunday afternoon but i think there's things to like about this one and a lot of it i think just stems from just you know the kind of the setting of the of the pieces I called the chessboard, Tarantino's chessboard in this film. Okay. In the dark, holding my stun gun, the whole house smells of cat pee. And after a couple of hours, I think, what am I doing this? It's 19 years of this shit? And I make up my mind. 
That's it. I'm not sure you answered my question, Max. Which one? If you had the chance, unemployed now, to walk away with a half million dollars, would you take it? All right, so let's uh, roll out here with a, a nightcap. And today's nightcap is actually keeping it in the Tarantino universe here. You know, this film has a lot of really great songs from Natural High to 110th Street to Didn't You Blow My Mind That Way. Like, there's some great music in this in this film. Or uh, there's also that sissy strut by The Meters, which that's that... It's like that, like, bass line. Very, very funk and soul. But again, the exploitation film movement was all about kind of introducing that type of music and having that be prominent in those films. That's, that's in this film as well. So my nightcap to you, Matt, is what is your favorite Quentin Tarantino soundtrack? Well, it's this one, despite the fact that I've kind of killed this film. <laughs> I just I have to say one thing. Go ahead. It's the most loved, well film in my entire bourbon library of okay. films. Because I, I think you gave you gave Spider Man well last week. You probably like this a little more than that one. Yeah, but it's this despite like there's there's for me liking the film and then there's the analysis of the film like i love a movie called mr wonderful which is a terrible film with matt Dillon and um i can't remember what her name is annabella Sharoa. Okay. it's garbage i love it so I'm, I'm not i'm not too proud to say that i don't like some bad film for whatever reason yeah okay but i like plenty of bad films Are you I kidding do me too. Yeah. you know what i mean i'm just saying it's it's not a solid film yeah okay from Roy Ayers in this movie mm-hmm. and sort of the rescoring of the coffee and the Foxy Brown stuff that he'd previously used to score Pam Greer's movements in this mm-hmm. to uh, Midnight Confessions by the Grassroots, which is a tremendous song. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to tell you a quick story, okay? Mm-hmm. When I was much, much younger, all the 80s songs that have come and gone... The one that stuck with me, maybe not the one, but one of the ones that stuck with me the most as the quote-unquote one-hit wonders Mm -hmm. was Only the Lonely by the Motels. Another one that kind of got forgotten, and you know where I'm going to go with this Mm -hmm. when I mention this, Mm -hmm. is Feeling Stronger Every Day by Chicago. As a young, young music entry participant, I remember those songs and having an affinity for them to where... Only the Lonely came on. I can remember my friends being like, oh, my God. And be like, no, no, that song's so good. Mm-hmm. Especially the Wailing Sax. Yes. And I mentioned Chicago, and you know where I'm going with this. Yeah. I like horns in my rock. Mm-hmm. And as I've gotten older, I've come to appreciate that even more. Yeah. What else is really good in my rock is a nice walking bass line. Mm-hmm. As you can tell by the entrance into the podcast. Mm-hmm. We both are fans of that. Yeah, exactly. And it doesn't have to be a bass guitar. It can be bass cello or bass whatever. Just a, walk, a nice walking bass. Yeah. There's plenty of that in all the Roy Air stuff, mm-hmm. in the Delphonic stuff, in um, Street Life, in Minnie Ripperton. Yeah. Jesse, my mom tells stories of how much I used to love <laughs> Loving You by Minnie Ripperton. <laughs> what funny. little dude loves <laughs> Loving You by Minnie Ripperton, which is a fantastic story. Do you know why she wrote that song? Mm. To keep her daughter placated so she could get it on with her boyfriend. <laughs> Minnie Ripperton was dead at 36, brother. Wow. From cancer. With an angel set of pipes. Mm. She's on this soundtrack. Okay. So it's, it's this and the Pulp Fiction is really good 
Dick Dale's a fucking jumping off point for me. Like yeah. I will show me Dick, I give me Dick Dale and I will show you the Delphonics yeah. or Bobby Womack, or Roy Ayers <laughs> any day of the week and yeah. I got you beat. Yeah. So it's this by a mile. Okay. By a mile. Excellent. Okay. Excellent. So mine, I guess I'll I'll tell a little story too. So the soundtrack I'm actually going with is the soundtrack from Death Proof. And my cinematic experience watching Death Proof, which if those of you who didn't go see it in the theaters in April of 2007, you missed out because it was a double feature bill with Planet Terror and that with fake trailers and the whole shebang for like three hours and 45 minutes you were in the theater. It was kind of insane. Yeah. But man, I like I had such a blast watching that and I just ate up all of both of those films. But the music from this film just always really sticks with me. You got songs like a cover of Baby It's You by Smith, uh, using uh, cues from Ennio Morricone, uh, Dario Argento uh, soundtracks, Jeepster by T-Rex. You know I really love T-Rex. Yep. Down in Mexico by The Coasters. Hold Tight by Dave D, Dozy Beaky, Mick, and Titch. And they do a whole little bit on that in the film. Yeah. Uh, Riot in Thunder Alley. I mean, it's a lot of like, surf-type-ish music with soundtrack music with ballads, with just kind of music that propels a car film. And that's what Death Proof is. It's like, it's the vanishing point Grindhouse's film that Tarantino is trying to replicate. Sure. So I have those songs on a playlist in my Spotify, my go-to. Like, I love listening to the songs from that film. But man, like, that that's a good one. I, I almost did Reservoir Dogs because you start that film out with Little Green Bag and man, you're off to the races. Like... Between that and Coconut by Harry Nielsen and Stuck in the Middle with You by Steeler's Wheel. You have K-Billy Super Sounds of the City. You have this like ghost DJ DJing your film. That's a good one too. I kind of really like the Kill Bill Volume 1 soundtrack as well. They use a cue in that film. You'll know it, Matt. It's whenever someone like opens... It's whenever uh, the bride sees something and you just see her stare and it goes... It's like alarm. Yeah, it's Ironside. It's the theme to Ironside by Quincy Jones mm-hmm. from the show with Perry Mason. Mm-hmm. L- love it. I-, I thought about that one too. Like, but just great music. It's something I actually look forward to, and I'm. It's probably what I'm most looking forward to with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Is what songs is he going to pick from that era of that time to show in that film? So let me ask you a question. Okay. Who's I, I, we don't have as many entries on both sides. Okay. But who's better? Okay. James Gunn in Guardians or Tarantino in his his filmography? Tarantino for now. Gunn's close though, isn't Gun's he? Cl- Gunn has some good songs. That, that that use of Father and Son by Cat Stevens oh, in yeah. Volume 2 was so perfect. Oh, yeah. But I want to see more of it before I could give like a definitive like comparison. Tarantino's been doing this for 25 years. They both sort of hinge on the same thing to me, which is mining songs from an era that was bastardized by disco and later on like even a little bit of hair yeah metal yeah he they found stuff that, and I, th- I think it's important like they're almost like that had been undergroundish but quality underground yeah they're like almost like music historians within their films there they're shining light on songs that i think are great that no one's heard of yeah and that's that's an art in of itself mm-hmm. well excellent Look, awesome Brand, like to that and it's not a tarantino thing but Brandy is one of the greatest, to me... By Looking Glass? By one of the top five <laughs> yeah. greatest one-hit wonders ever. That song is brilliant. Yeah. And the way it's used in that film mm-hmm. with the guy you love, Kurt Russell, mm-hmm. 
he's the closest thing mm-hmm. to rivaling, I think, Tarantino. I, you know, Cameron Crowe at times, I would especially say singles, mm-hmm. has some moments, but you know, he's the JV to both of their Los Angeles Lakers yeah. in the Kobe Shaq era. Yeah, oh, that, there <laughs> I you hate go. That era. Uh, I love that reference. Go Spurs! Excellent. Well, this has been a fun episode. It's been. Interesting to kind of go back and forth on like what we've both thought of this film, but maybe we're going to have a little bit of that coming up next week. We've had a fan voted episode for next week. We had a great turnout, actually, and it was very close. It I'm was actually like, surprised by this. Yeah. So, yeah. So next week, we're actually going to be covering uh, from 2009 Inglorious Bastards. Yeah, I was a little surprised by this too, Matt, but I know a lot of people out there that really like this film, and I'm excited to talk about it. I know we've differed in the past on like where we fall on this inglorious spectrum, but there's some great iconic scenes to talk about, some great characters, some performances, also some music, but also just kind of this is Tarantino kind of, in a way, rewriting history, mm-hmm. which is interesting to say the least. Revisionist history, if we want to call it that. I can't wait to get to this. Yeah, I can't wait to do this podcast okay. with you. Okay, excellent. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna. I'm bring. I'm bring my fighting guns for this one. Yeah, we're excellent. gonna have. W- I'm bringing my scalping knife for this one, Matt. This might be a first. Okay, in excellent. All of the rice smiles. This really might be a first. We're usually a standard deviation, maybe a flight away. This was probably the biggest yeah. rift we've had in yeah. estimations of film. Yeah. And that's what isn't this Tarantino in a nutshell though. But I think this is him though. You said this at the beginning of the podcast off mic to me is I think we fall differently on Tarantino's spectrum, and I think a lot of that's due to when we were introduced to the man. We'll get into the '90s alternative entry into film next week and talk Mm -hmm. about the Finchers and the uh, Soderberghs and the Nolans and kind of where they even Shyamalan to a certain extent Mm -hmm. to where they break in with what they break in. Yeah, Uh, it's a very important period in film that you can argue didn't have the staying power kind of like grunge music in the same way that they, i think it should they're have. identical actually isn't it weird it's very weird god god bless the 90s excellent all right so cheers matt cheers jesse i'm gonna get going i gotta go to the mall maybe go to billingsley maybe i'm gonna get a suit kind of like jackie's suit <laughs> black and white yeah maybe they can recast men in black international with you and i and maybe it'll make some money this okay time. excellent oh gosh uh, speaking to the dredge that is summer 2019 <laughs> well because i gotta get this podcast and the lack of money out of sight so i'm gonna go find some elmore leonard that's good excellent submerse myself in that amen to that we'll see you all next week everybody have a good week we'll see you in the dark thank you for listening to rye smile films follow us on facebook and instagram to stay in the know for future episodes and be sure to subscribe to us on apple podcasts spotify podbean youtube Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or leave us an email at ricemileproductions at gmail.com. Jackie Brown is property of Miramax Films, A Band Apart, Mighty Mighty Aphrodite Productions, Lawrence Bender Productions, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. Lewis. What?
Where's the rest of it? How much is that? I don't know, maybe 40, shit, maybe less. You said 550. Yeah, so you light, ain't you? You light about half million ten. Look, look, man, that's the bag she came out with. She never put a hand in it, neither did I. Came out of where? Out of the, the fitting room. It went down exactly the way it was supposed to. How long was she in there? A minute. Not, not even a minute. She came right out. Oh, she telling me the truth. Listen, I swear to fucking God, man, I swear on my life, she came out with that fucking bag and I took it from her. And then what? And that was it. We went to the parking lot. Well, you shot her. That's right. Lewis, you should have known in a room somewhere with a half million dollars. I worked my ass off to get oh, waiting for you. Fuck you for asking me that. Hey, I know How the bitch tried to set me fuck up. Fuck you, she man. Didn't ask uh, you. Fuck you, brother. How she could you fucking ask me, ask me that?